Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Clark Freilich. And I'm Clyde Gaw. And this is the Blocks, Paper, Scissors podcast. In today's podcast, we will be answering the question, what is constructivism in our teaching? Plus, we'll dive into how it reveals itself in a tab classroom. Today is November 2nd, and it's been a crazy week, Clyde. I would agree, Clark. We've got, I've got uh, an art show barreling down uh, on me uh, in a couple of weeks. I'm getting ready for that, and um, uh, and on top of that, um, we've got some other things happening um, at the Indiana uh, Art Education Association uh, State Conference. And so we're getting ready for that. And um, That's right. Um, you're going to be presenting on, what is the topic? Uh, the topic is emergence uh, as, a, as a way to facilitate creative experience. What does that mean exactly? Uh, Without getting too much into detail. Well, um, emergence is a, uh, a way of thinking about uh, an activity and a way of thinking about approaching an activity. So uh, it actually comes out of systems thinking and uh, cybernetics, which I'm not going to go into. But uh, basically, when you take many small components, continuously reorganize them, pretty soon you will come up with a fairly fascinating and complex whole. So you get so out of many smaller components, if we if an artist continually makes marks or continually explores uh, a material, pretty soon uh, because the artist is his own agent, he's going or she's going to organize these elements into a, a satisfying or a uh, aesthetically pleasing whole. And so that's, that's the key uh, idea behind emergence in, in art education. It's awesome. And, and thinking about, you know, how um, as real artists, as you and I have explored art making uh, throughout all of our lives, you and I, I know we're, we uh, experiment and uh, continually push our whatever medium we're in, thinking about this process of looking at something with fresh eyes and uh, letting ideas incubate. And that was something that Nan Hathaway uh, wrote about in, um, in one of her articles. It was about uh, authentic art making. It was about her observations of children at work in a tab classroom. And she wrote about this incubation process. And that is a bona fide way to, uh, to realize new ideas uh, with respect to, to creative work. Mm-hmm. is to to uh, to look at things with fresh eyes to make changes and adjustments and to continue down uh, whatever pathway you've, you're working from so so emergence is a multifaceted 
topic, and um, you know it goes back to Aristotle, and so it's it's a real phenomenon. It's it's a scientific phenomenon, and you think about human beings as systems, and you know we're we are flesh and blood, but basically we <laughs> we are in this reality of the on this earth as systems, where each of you. Uh, each of us are unique systems, and um, cybernetics is the uh, the science of systems theory, and um, and it's adaptable to computers, but very much adaptable to creative work. And again, I I can't go into cybernetics yet, but I because you know I'm still exploring that topic, and I I but it it is uh, about you know human beings as unique biological systems. Well, I'm sure it's going to be a fascinating discussion, but I also want to get back on our topic of constructivism. Alex Hamilton Green wanted to know, what is constructivism in art teaching? And that made me think about constructivism because I haven't really visited the idea for a while until she asked this question, and I'd forgot everything that I ever you know, learned about by reading in college and things like that. So that's a great question, Alex. And thank you for asking the question. Clyde, do you want to discuss it? I know there's uh, research on it. We can't cover the whole topic in this short podcast. But I know that we can talk about how it appears in our classrooms. Clark, you and I were having conversations back in 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003, when we were team teaching together, and we were having we were having talks about cognitive science, instructional psychology, you know, and we were always talking about, you know, using rewards <laughs> to get kids to do things, and I was handing out tickets to get kids to clean up. And, you know, we, we were talking, uh, we're mainly, you know, we were talking about, you know, getting kids to use our rubrics. Uh, so I think when, you know, a rubric can be a communication tool, but it can also be a tool to manipulate. So we wanted to get away from, from that after we, after we started exploring uh, choice-based art education and TAB. I think there's way too much manipulation in education, at least from what I witness in classrooms and what the talking heads in the legislatures think what is a quality education. Oh, yeah. yeah that's the, the worst thing that any parent uh, or um, any s- citizen to get advice on education from a politician. That is, that, that's the worst thing you can do. Um, you need to go straight to experts and teachers, and especially your child's teacher who's who is um, working with the child and knows the child. But, um, but back to Alex, Alex's uh, question, you know, how does constructivism manifest itself in a TAB classroom? And that's an excellent question because TAB is a, TAB is a constructivist art education pedagogy. And Kathy Douglas and I were doing, uh, we did a couple presentations uh, one at Hofstra and Nan Hathaway was there, and we did another one in Chicago in 2010, 2011. This was at the uh, National Constructivism Yes, Conference. Association for Constructivist Teachers. Yes, I remember that. And we met Julie Toole there. And, and then also Shout you... Shout out to Julie Toole. <laughs> we love Julie. <laughs> she needs to come on our show. <laughs> 
remember also you and I and Diane and Kathy, we did a presentation on discovery learning in in a tab classroom at at National Art Education Association Conference in Chicago. It was 2007 that we did that presentation because we had a, we had a, also had a a studio. uh, We had a gallery show also with uh, tab teachers and other art teachers. That was awesome. That was the name of that studio or that gallery show was Rhizome. And you and I were talking about rhizomes back then because that's a metaphor for the mind. Which, uh, which you think about, I was complaining on our last podcast about, you know, this, the, the departments of education, they don't provide teachers or parents with a definition of the human mind because, because, they, uh, because they don't really want to go there. Now, what that requires is um, a holistic approach to learning and to education. And departments of education don't want to really, I mean, holistic forms of education are very personal. And what we have in, in state and national departments of education is all about efficiencies and, and mass production of experience. Back to the mind as a rhizome. What does, the, what does a rhizome metaphor mean? It's a, it's a metaphor for interconnectedness, a dynamic interconnected network of memories, of capabilities, of speech capacities and action capacities and memory capacities and experience. And exp- and it, yeah, it's and so what Donald Cunningham, the sem- a semiotic professor from Indiana University who used that term in um, in many of his papers, but what the rhizome really is is it's an inconceivable globality and if you think of the human mind as this dynamic living consciousness that is an organ just like other organs in the human body it's an organ of unbelievable importance in education and uh, we don't really talk that much about it uh, f- uh, in state departments of education because, you know, this is where the rubber hits the road with respect to, to learning and what teachers, their interactions with children in the classroom. And back to our points of why we became TAB teachers is classrooms are heterogeneous. They are heterogeneous communities of children. So that leads us to two problems with education that I'd like to point out and then that we will talk about in uh, on um, that I'm going to talk about tomorrow at the, at the Art Education Association of Indiana conference and there's two problems. The first problem is the assumption that children of the same age can be taught as homogeneous groups using standardized methods because if you think about children about cognitive variation, some children will get it. Some children will have a unsatisfactory experience. Uh, so, th- so that's an assumption that you and I ran into as we became older art teachers. Once we once we got into the field, um, the second assumption, the second problem that I, we see is that children can learn effectively through one directional presentations of materials and learning experience. And you know, when you and I first started working with tab setups with room environments and with multiple modes of 
of learning presentations and uh, opportunities for learning in our classrooms. You know, you and I, we saw our rooms light up with, with all kinds of joy and, and activity. And, you know, we could see uh, in the looks of our students' faces, you know, what this meant to them to be able to operate as their own agents of learning. It's like you were talking about uh, uh, the case for constructivist classrooms, and that kind of hits on some of the, the major ideas of a classroom where the teachers encourage and accept that autonomy and initiative in students. It's the students who are leading the search for knowledge. They're creating their own path, which makes the TAD classroom is an optimal environment for learning and how it fits in with constructivist theory. Yes. As, as opposed to other kinds of experiences the kids are getting in school. Now, I know a lot of learning is done on, online today uh, with, you know, children will plug into a computer interface. You know, everything is linear. They have, they can either be tasked with, with reading assignments um, and do selected response, information processing kinds of activities. They're really good for preparing kids for standardized tests. There's really no choice, and even though there's some autonomy, they're still stuck in that narrow band of the app or the program or whatever it is that the, the teacher, they're using the, the devices to control the kids yeah. and not you know, free reign to explore. They're, they're sitting in a seat or, or standing or... You know, but the main interface is with the computer screen. You know, that's problematic on all kind of different uh, levels. And we and you and I are we're here to talk about art education, but but we right. we we've got problems with that because when you and I use computers to help a kid do an electronic portfolio, they're not spending all their time on the computer. They're just so when when boys and girls or when when kids spend five or six hours on the computer uh, in front of their screens, I think it does some some type of damage. I think it was Lowenfeld who mentioned social learning and how important the social culture was to learning in children. I think that the tab classroom is the best place in school, one of the best places that I know of, where children can collaborate with one another and create their own collaborative groups. And I know Lev Vygotsky did work on that also, where, you know, the social dynamic of interactions with children is a important aspect of their learning because, because there's the added social element of, um, of being with another human being and conversing with them. And I think that's why you and I became TAB teachers is because we had, you know, we were, we struck up a collegial relationship. You know, we were able to bounce ideas off of each other. And while we were doing classroom activities, our classroom activities uh, when we were teaching in the, in the mid nineties actually became action research. Yeah. So uh, the social aspect of, uh, of learning uh, in a TAB classroom, very important uh, to enhance what goes on in there. From a semiotic perspective, semiotic, semiotics is the science of sign interpretation. And uh, some semi- semioticians would tell you that the best 
possible place for children to learn at is inside of uh, something called an umvelt. An umvelt is where organisms feel connected uh, from a a biological standpoint. And children, I know, tell me, Mr. Gaw, this is my favorite class. And, um, you know, this is, and this is not uncommon for kids to feel a real connection to the art room, to the tab art room, because they're able to uh, form working groups on their own. They're autonomous agents of their own learning. They have time, support, and they experience the power of their minds. And, And so the tab art room from a you know, creativity standpoint and a learning standpoint, uh, you know, one of the most important rooms in the school. Well, this morning I had my Visions Art Kids, and this is a, it's an early morning art club. Lucky kids. And we were doing some jelly printing. Uh-huh. We were doing marble painting, and as the the kids were working and I'm talking to them, they were commenting about how creative they felt uh-huh. I was mentioning to them I said when you create when you're in a an environment with creative people you become more creative uh-huh. it's it's the back and forth it's like you said it's the the observation of what other kids are doing that are firing ideas and they were just feeding off each other about and every time I talk to people uh, who teach tab uh-huh. or who are in that mode, they always say, I will never teach another way again. Right. Because it is such a it is such a right feeling and such a good feeling. Yes. If you feel good teaching and you know what you're doing is right, every day is exciting, every day is amazing. It's just a great thing to do. And you know, I can't I can't say anything otherwise. You know, I've been doing this for seventeen years. You're you're not an adversary of the children like you might be in a in a radical behavior s- structured classroom where you have to motivate children with extrinsic rewards. Uh, you pair activities with a reward or a punishment. <laughs> if you don't, if you don't do this, you're going to get a bad grade. What well, just develops resentment? The kids, the kids don't like it. Yeah. That's why they come in. They're like, Mr. Gaw, can I have art all the time? Yeah. We we have uh, heard many children say, I, you know, I've, I had a child, I, I recall this child did not do very well in school, and he said to me one day, he said, Mr. Gaw, art should be like the whole school. And, um, and I felt awful for the child because I know that you know, he was having some problems in his other cl- his other classes, which gets us back to constructivism. And you know, children uh, they form they construct their own knowledge based on their experience of that uh, of of the learning. You know, the tab classroom is naturally a constructivist classroom. And in Jackie Grennan Brooks and Martin Brooks' book, oh, I'm sorry, uh, In Search of Understanding the Case for the case Constructivist Classrooms, they um, have 12, there are 12 principles of constructivism that are beneficial uh, to understand if you are working inside of a, of a tab classroom. And, and you and I were looking at the 12, and, and you know, there, there are like three or four that really stand out. 
in my mind, and, and I, I will take number one. This is adapted uh, based on uh, uh, Jackie Grennan Brooks and her husband Martin Brooks. Uh, this is adapted from their book. So, uh, on becoming a choice-based art teacher, principle number one, choice-based art teachers encourage and accept student autonomy and initiative. And I think that's, you know, that is, like we've said, we anticipate that children have differences, differences of mind. And getting back to constructivism, which was kind of created by Piaget, uh, well, I should, and, you know, many great educators and philosophers have also dabbled in constructivist forms of pedagogy also. But Piaget, with his uh, genetic epistemology, is what he, he called it, and then, of course, is, did a lot of research with children uh, in the 30s and, and 40s. But uh, when he came out with constructivism as a learning theory around 1936, he talked about four stages of child development. You know, our kids are in between those stages of child development. So when you think about, you know, when, when we get them in elementary and middle school and, and uh, high school, you know, they're like, a, a, let's talk about Piaget's cognitive development stages. Sensory motor stage happens from birth to approximately age two. And that's is defined by, you know, children are, are working with their hands, they're putting things in their mouths, they're learning about the world through their bodies and uh, in touch and sensory forms of interactions. Pre-operational stage uh, is from two to seven years old. And um, uh, children begin to recognize signs and symbols and... Uh, they can engage in symbolic play and and uh, different kinds of language games. And and by the way, I'm I'm looking at Marcy Driscoll's book uh, on instructional psychology while I'm reading these off. The third stage is concrete operational. Uh, children perform true mental operations. They can solve concrete problems in a logical fashion. So they're they're beginning to to be able to think more abstractly. In formal operation, uh, 11 years and onward, where I see most of my kids in development, but believe it or not, we have some at high school level are in between concrete operational and formal operational. So this is, you know, we see kids at different stages of, of cognitive development. There's no clear cut. You, you can't say, oh, a child is you know, they're in a concrete operational stage and they're 11 years old. No, they might, they, they might be uh, still at a, at a lower stage or a higher stage, depending on their uh, mental framework and their, their mental schema. We have no idea, if, you know, many times of what the child's, what their home life is like. If there's something affecting them at home the day before when they come to school, they might have been traumatized and their cognitive function has been diminished based on the fact that they come into class being, uh, you know, they're getting over uh, trauma that they experienced and any, you know, any, any kind of trauma that could be, a, you know, abuse or... Uh, they could um, just be hungry. Yeah, they could be hungry. We, we don't have... Tired. 
Yeah, they could be tired. Uh, they could have stared in, into their telephones too long and come to class without sleep, sleep deprivation, and they're operating at a low functional, uh, low cognitive function. But I think it's almost crazy to assume, earlier you were talking about the kids we uh, teach, they're heterogeneous, to assume that, you know, that they all come in exactly with the same mental abilities and the same level of preparedness and the same amount of support at home. It's crazy to think that. We see that in, in the TAB classroom. We can adjust for those variabilities easily. Absolutely. Absolutely. And having a room with as many opportunities for learning with a flexible curriculum where the child can have a say in the activities they're participating in. Take ownership. Take ownership. And back to constructivism. Right. Children construct their own knowledge uh, to make meaning of their experience. And, uh, and so they, and they are very, very highly motivated to, to create their own learning situations. So thinking about the list of 12 principles um, and there's and we'll post the list for our readers to check out. Number there are several that stand out, but we'll we'll look at just a couple here because I don't think we have enough time to really get too deep into it. But certainly we can come back at another podcast and talk about them. But one one that is also our bread and butter is number eight, which is choice based and tab teachers seek and encourage student reflective thinking expressed through ongoing dialogue, reflective writing, and artist statements. You know, we were talking about using computers for electronic portfolios. You know, our, the, when you and I use computers, it's f- to enhance a creative experience. And, 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 you know, the computer is just a tool to us to amplify that, that experience that the child has had with their art making. So, and then also, you know, articulating their experience with words and developing language capabilities, written and spoken. When you and right. I have dialogue with them, uh, you know, that's, that's the other fun thing that we get to do is have conversations with kids. We do that a lot, is to, to talk to kids, to really find out what they're thinking and conferencing with them and finding where they are in the process. And you can only do that. I mean, you can get that so much through looking at artwork, but to have a one-on-one conversation with a young artist to really see where they are and then help them move forward is one of the, the cornerstones, like you said, of TAB. You know, we've had many kids who seem to be stuck. They'll be working on the same thing over and over. Some people... In my case, I get a lot of kids working with rainbows where they're just working in the center for a long period of time and just sitting down and talking with that person, not necessarily looking to find something and asking good questions to kind of probe to see what's going on. Uh, you can get an amazing look into inside their mind. You know, They might continue to work in that way for two weeks to a year and then all of a sudden they move on. They will have been incubating, and uh, the you know new ideas emerge. Back to emergence, uh, new uh, interests develop, and so the child is free then to act on those desires to express new ideas. But 
pressuring a child. You know, if, if I have a child making a rainbow, um, I've, you know, and you and I have talked about dialogue with, you know, how we might dialogue. We ask open-ended questions. But pressuring a child until, you know, use it, putting my judgments on their rainbow picture, I think um, might be problematic, particularly if that rainbow, uh, if that child has who knows what's going on in their right. home life, and they need to make that rainbow in your art class. There's that symbolic of, you know, maybe that rainbow represents their escape. You know, maybe they're thinking about a loved one, or we, you know, until you talk to that student, we really don't know. And it's not just a, a trite symbol that, you know, you and I as art teachers for over 50 years, if I had a nickel for every rainbow that I've seen, <laughs> I'd be a millionaire. But every one of those rainbows is worth $100 to the kid who was, who was making it. The rainbow presents an opportunity for other kinds of learning that, you know, we could, we could use that as a, uh, a jumping off point. And like, I know you and I have shown kids on a separate piece of paper, you can take colors, your rainbow colors, and then add uh, shoots and pathways that, you know, and show them the work of abstract expressionists and, and uh, color uh, optical artists uh, who might use bands, color bands, and interweave the color bands and create uh, an abstract picture from it. Or use the rainbow to talk about perspective, atmospheric perspective. And so next time the child makes a rainbow, it might be on a more complex landscape composition. So <clears throat> the rainbow, I, I embrace rainbows, and I look forward to seeing them because I know the children are uh, expressing joy at that moment. And so that's that's always a good teaching moment, and right. so we can we can we can segue to other forms of art learning f based on the rainbow. Rainbows rock, <laughs> Clyde. This is a topic that we could talk about for several hours, and you and I know that sometimes when we get talking, things get out of control. But we need to wrap this episode up before we go. Is there anything you'd like to add? Well, we forgot to mention that our special guest that we thought we were going, going to have this broadcast during this podcast, um, we're actually going to have our special guest uh, with us. She'll be calling from Boston, Massachusetts. Waltham, maybe? Perhaps. Waltham, perhaps Gloucester. Who knows? We'll have to check with her where she can get the best telephone connection. But uh, our special guest will be with us via telephone on our next podcast. So we're, I'm I'm sorry that if we disappointed any listeners. Assuming we have listeners. <laughs> Just a reminder to our listeners, if you're out there... If you have a question or topic you'd like Clyde or me to discuss, just email it to us at seagaw at blockspaperscissors.com. You can also record your question on your mobile device and send that in too. You can now listen to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us to get notified when new episodes are available. Plus, if you like our podcast, please give us a review. I'm Clark. And I'm Clyde. Thanks for listening to the Blocks Paper Scissors Podcast.